0: Everybody, happy opening! Oh, happy home opener to everybody. We'll be listening to this on Friday. Um, we're kind of a shame the Mets got postponed on Thursday. The weather held out, uh, not even like for the most part, like all the way. It was sunny at four o'clock. Maybe it got cloudy a little bit, but uh, Taryn, how, how are we? Uh, how are we feeling, pal? Uh, the Mets uh, w- aren't are, the first and won't be the last to uh, go to Milwaukee and get absolutely hammered.
1: Yeah, and the Mets seem to do it a lot, but uh, unfortunately, I just read that they're not going to allow the Mets to play their remaining. Uh, what is it, one hundred and fifty-five games? Um, the season's over, and uh, Steve Cohen's money is all spent. There's no more, and uh, it's all it's all over.
0: Yeah, you know, I think you should probably pay the payrolls of all the other all twenty-nine other teams just to you know just to smooth out any inconvenience of the Mets canceling the rest of their year.
1: I heard that he's actually going to have to give a billion dollars to the the Castellinis and to the Nuttings just uh, as penance for daring to spend and then having his team lose four out of their first seven games. So uh, <laughs> how, how dare obviously, he? yeah, obviously I think we try to keep a level head. What did I say I was going to try to do at the beginning of the year before we even kicked off. I'm not going to let the day to day drag me down. All right. I'm going to, I'm in it for the long haul. We're going to see what, what 162 uh, is like, and hopefully more, right? Like, I don't know. I, I think last year was such a good reminder. We kicked the shit out of the Phillies, like 14 and five or something like that against the Phillies. And they were the last national league team standing. So, uh, all you have to do is get into the dance and get a little lucky I mean they were they were down to their last couple of outs right in the uh in the wildcard round and they managed to rally in St Louis and it powered them through the entire um playoffs so there's no reason to think that there's uh, that the Mets can't turn it around right now and uh and there's no reason to think that even if it's bad in April, April, that it can't be better in May June July and onwards but uh, I am excited because uh the the Mets are gonna be able to start their home season and um uh, Buck said hopefully coming home to some uh some happy faces um although uh you know he knows what he means by that
0: oh it's gonna be a nice Friday afternoon at the ballpark everyone's gonna be happy look the Mets are three and four um Milwaukee You know, however young they are, however many warts they have as a team, it's a nice team. They played their asses off the whole series. Um, Did the Mets, you know, flounder a little bit? Of course. Max Scherzer had a tough game. David Peterson had a tough game. Um, It was nice to see Lindor and Pete come around on on Wednesday. But, you know, sure, did it take pretty much all last season for the Mets to, to lose a series? Yeah, but... You know, get it out of the way now. Um, you know, the Phillies, you talked about them, they're one and five going into their third series of the year. You know, you look over at uh Houston, they're, you know, three and four, just like the Mets. They're they're you know, I think we're gonna see parity around the league. I think we're gonna see teams getting hot. I think that maybe the shuffling of the of the schedule might have an effect as far as um just you know, teams finding a, a spark maybe where they wouldn't have in the in the, the the progress of the season. Who knows? In any case, you know the Mets are still a good team. Um, some might argue that Francisco Alvarez, who's going to be added to the roster if not already by Friday, uh, he'll be you know on the the home opener roster. He's taking over the spot of uh, Omar Narvaez, who's going to be in. Well, he's going to be shelved for at least a couple of months. Um, had some calf issues. Came out of the game early on Wednesday. They're saying this could be an eight nine week rehab process. It's a it's a mild to high grade uh, strain in his calf. So you know the MRI clearly saw something. But you know Francisco Alvarez he can hit lefties really well, and that's been an area the Mets the Mets have had some trouble with this year. Um, no, well, not on Wednesday against uh, against Burns, but no Burn, Burns isn't a lefty, is he? No, I, I was thinking of the uh, of Wednesday, um, of Tuesday, but you know it's 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 just kind of a, a roller coaster, and you roll with it. You know, I get the um, and we talked about it. We talked about it previously previously with expectations and how that might skew outlooks. You know, sure, there's very high expectations, but boy, you turn this into you know 162 one game seasons. One, it's going to be a very long season for the fan, and, and you know that's just not how baseball is supposed to be digested. It's—I sh- shouldn't say supposed to be. That's not how I digest baseball. <laughs> it, it's a long season for a reason. Um, you know, you go on a hot streak, and, and whatever bumps in the road are, are forgotten about, and 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 you're just off and running. You look forward; you don't look back. You lost some games. It's to me, it's it's uh, it's no big deal. Uh, Are you, were you concerned with what Max has shown so far?
1: Yeah. Only because it's like the last four starts have been a little rough for him. Um, but he was like, he
0: was firing off, you know, bullets in, um, in spring training, his last couple of starts were, you know, lights out. He looked like he was right there.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I, I think that he is a thinker. I think that he'll figure out um, how to best approach the situation. But after the game, I think uh, what he said was accurate, right? It's just a matter of location. He's got to locate those pitches better. Um, and he hung one. Uh, uh, and so I, I thought that that um, wake-up call for sure and – um he's somebody that doesn't take failure lightly. Right. So it's not going to be a, a long-term thing with him. I don't think, I think he's going to uh, keep going the way he has been um, to this point in his career. And, and I think he'll, uh, he'll figure it out. He'll turn it around. I'm not terribly worried. And then um, the imaging on uh, Verlander came back positive, And so he'll be back soon-ish. So um the good news with that uh, is, is that he's been throwing the entire time. So hopefully the ramp up won't take too long. Um, and and they could use him. The Mets could really use him, uh, especially if, um, you know, we don't know what we're going to get out of Cookie at this point. Uh, it looked like he was cruising and then uh, really struggled after that. So uh, I, I I think, obviously, anytime that you have one of the 10 best pitchers or so, and first ballot Hall of Famer. You want him back. And, uh, and so once the Mets get him back, then I'm going to start to assess like how they're doing. The good news on Wednesday was that the Bats woke up against a really good pitcher. They scored enough runs to, uh, to win the game. They just, um, obviously some late issues with the bullpen, uh, Drew Smith giving up that, uh, the, the, the two run double in the gap to Jesse Winker who just always seems to find a way to uh, harass the Mets and uh and then you know the the outavino uh that was just a good piece of hitting by uh, Mitchell cuz he turned on one that was uh, inside and low
0: good young player Garrett Mitchell
1: yeah and uh they have uh, a few of those guys, right? Like him and uh, Weimer. Oh uh, yeah, and, Weimer and
0: um, uh, shoot, Bryce Tarang.
1: Yep, and uh, all of those guys contributed during that series. So, I think the Mets have lost like what uh, seventeen or eighteen out of twenty or something. There, basically, like the only two games that we won are the ones that we won last year to clinch the the postseason berth. So. Uh, I think also one thing to keep in mind, just as a matter of perspective, Jay Horowitz tweeted today that, uh, he wants everyone to remember that April 14th, 1986, the Mets were under 500 and people were freaking out because, um, like this year, there was a lot of hype and, um, that team did okay. Right. So
0: I think so. I I think
1: not to say that this team will end up in the same place but the uh, the expectations are there the talent is there I don't think that they're this bad right I don't think that they're a sub 500 team whatever you think of their talent or e- even like the the veteran core I don't think that they're a they're a sub 500 team so uh also the other thing that I really liked on um on Wednesday was seeing Pete get going you know. Yeah. Two home runs. That was that was big. We haven't really had a big peak game yet. So uh it took him about a week to get going. Went but down and got the this first This offense. One too. Oh, sorry. But, sorry. So
0: he went down and got that first one too. It was really impressive. Yeah.
1: Big time. And uh and so uh I think that they've got strong leadership, they're a uh, level headed bunch. I think that they'll be fine.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I bet you Scherzer in that in that locker room and on that flight home, and especially after the uh, the the series he had, and I'm sure he was vocal that that leadership um likely can't go uh, understated. Um, of course, you know we won't know the full scope of it on the outside, but you have to you have to kind of assume that uh, you know. He, he's likely a vocal leader in that room. He could probably look at guys like Lindor, look at guys like Pete and, you know, keep it level headed, but keep it focused. And I think that that's a, it's a good leadership core to, uh, to keep that message across. And then of course you have Buck who, you know, just the epitome of level headed. And, um, uh, you know, I think if, if this organization feels that they have to make changes, they have to make upgrades or they have to fill gaps, they will. And, and, I think we're going to know sooner rather than later who this team actually is. And uh, I think, you know, personally, I think that next week with uh, San Diego coming in, you know, if the Mets can't turn it on and, and, and put up a fight against a world-class ball club like the Padres. The team that sent them home last year. Team that sent them home last year. You better get up for that team. But first things first, you got the Marlins and, uh, you know, uh, nothing's win, you know, must win yet. Cause it's, only the second week of April, but uh, <laughs> it, it's, you know, it, everybody wants this team to succeed fans organization, the players, of course, you, you know, you have to assume they're all ha- amped up to, to, to get this thing going and you know, maybe it's butterflies, maybe w- whatever. It's just baseball. I, I, I full com- full confidence. They're going to uh, figure it out.
1: Yeah. Um, and and I think that there's a, a good deal of uh, excitement that'll come with not only being home for the home opener, but also, uh, you know, Alvarez, this is really an opportunity for him to take the job and run with it. Right. And and he hasn't necessarily had this before, came up late last year in the middle of a pennant race, uh, but didn't necessarily get an opportunity to play every day. The Mets have been pretty consistent in saying that they want to, him to get as many at-bats as possible to catch as many innings as possible. And so I think that what you're going to see is that he catches, he gets like the heavy uh, timeshare here uh, behind the plate and he'll DH some as well. But I I think that this is a really big opportunity for him and something that all of us have been waiting for, for a long time, right? Um, He's been a top prospect. It's a guy that came up through the system and, uh, and we've all expected a lot of him. And I'm really excited to see what he's going to do.
0: Oh, same here. Uh, I mean, we've spoke about it at length here on the show, and and you know, I guess with three with three catchers on the roster, it would have been a bit different. He probably would have been able to DH more. Um, with only two on the roster, I think that his DH at bats might be few and far between. And someone brought this up on Twitter, and I think it was an excellent point. Um, you don't want to lose your second catcher or, or have your second catcher DHing on a day that you know. God forbid something happens. Um, you know, it just it, – it it's probably an avenue you don't want to go down very often, but on the occasions that you have a left-handed hitter in there and maybe Alvarez could, you know, doesn't – or Nito could use a, a day behind the plate, you know, sure, put him in there. Let him hit. Um, if something does yeah, happen, well, you, 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 you double switch him out. Now, hypothetically, if they – Double switched out. If Nito's behind the plate, he got hurt, and you have to double switch Alvarez out of the DH spot. Do you then lose your DH, or is that only with the? Well, no, I I, I I know there's a new rule where like if you switch out a DH or you lose your DH or something, I just don't know if that would apply, where you have to double switch him. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah no, uh, rhetorical i'm kind of just thinking out loud and it stopped me dead in my tracks when it hit my brain but uh, anyway um uh, i'm I also, think that, <laughs> i'm sorry go ahead
1: well no i think that alvarez is going to benefit from uh or he has benefited from the fact that he's already on the 40 man michael perez is not on the 40 man but i wonder if uh in order to carry a third catcher given if they want to get Alvarez more DH spots, you move Narvaez to the sixty, free up that forty man spot, and bring up uh, Perez for the duration of the injury to have a third catcher.
0: Yeah, that could work, and it would certainly allow Alvarez to take get left handed, um, right handed DH at bats against lefties, and um, I like that. I'm not sure if Perez is probably is is the third catcher the Mets would. Would say, oh, "All right, this is this is our guy." Uh, maybe they'd go outside the organization for a third catcher. Who knows? Um, Perez could certainly, you know, fill the gap. But maybe you'd also want someone who could give you a little more offensively. Possibly, who knows? It's just another wrinkle trade to the,
1: uh, for Gary Sanchez. Sorry, I said trade for Gary Sanchez.
0: Hey, uh, he just went to somebody. Just picked him up, San Francisco. Yeah, the Giants. Yeah, minor league good for him that's uh, you know he's he's got like i, I want to say like two or three of the hardest hit balls in statcast history
1: that's amazing
0: yeah i mean it's probably you're probably looking at top 10 or something like that but uh, it's impressive just a monster when he's when he's right but yeah you know probably getting towards the later stages but yeah i'm curious what they do to maximize alvarez's exposure potential his development because that's what this is about right now like was it is it quicker than the team anticipated sure um but now it's it's time to go so you kind of want to speed this along it's not like oh well you know you're here just to learn you're here to get better no right now you're, you're here to produce so you know i hope they give him every opportunity and every i guess you know safety net to uh to get him in there and if that's you know, bringing a a third catcher up to the 25, uh, 26 man, or however you want to work it out with a a third catcher. I guess you do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't think they're bringing him up to jerk him around or anything like that. So,
0: um,
1: the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, how are we feeling about Escobar? Like he had a couple of hits and, uh, is it the game on Wednesday? Um, but had started slow. I think he was like one for 16 to start the year.
0: Yeah. Uh, hey, it's not a place you want to be um, when you know that, you know, your job's kind of hanging in the balance, or at least your starting job. I still think he could be a terrific, you know, bench cog. He hits lefties very, very well. Um, useful, useful guy on the roster at this point. Him starting, Might be a um, it it might you know that time might be closing, and if as long as Beatty's okay and the thumbs are right and everything was just precautionary, I I have a feeling if things don't pick up, we'll see him at at some point very soon as well.
1: Yeah, I think with Beatty, it was just a little bit swollen. He should be okay. The only fear was that that was the same thumb where he had torn the ligament um, previously. Um, So. Uh yeah, I think he's um, he's obviously been playing really well, showing off some great defense. Um, he's made a mistake or two defensively also from what I've read, but uh, nothing that uh, is too terribly concerning. I think he's making the plays that he should be making, and I think it's just a matter of time for him.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think we're all just kind of looking forward to it at this
1: point. Yeah. What else do we have on the show?
0: Oh, man, we got so much, bro. I got We got Paul Hempikidis, who, um, of course, we had Greeny on last week. And uh, Hembo was uh, co-author on uh, By the Number. I got you. Excuse me. Got your number. Uh, the Greatest Sports Legends and the Numbers They Own. So uh, Hembo comes on and, and we talk. Well, we start with the book and then kind of go off on multiple tangents. We ended up somewhere in Baltimore. I think we got some NFL in there. And speaking of NFL, Laurie Rubinson from FAN joins us. Also, we start on baseball and somehow get into draft talk and and Aaron Rodgers and what the Giants are going to do with this newfound success in the core. But, you know, who cares? It's a Mets podcast. We we went off the rails and we loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait. You guys hang tight. Um, We're going to be back with Hembo and uh, Taron. We'll be back at the end of the weekend. Yep. All right. All right, guys, hang tight. We'll be right back. all right welcome back uh really just uh, another wonderful guest we have on uh co-host of the Greeny show on espn radio producer of uh get up which is on weekday mornings on espn and the co-author of got your number the greatest sports legends and the numbers they own which is out this
2: week uh paul Hambekidis, hambo welcome to the show man what's up buddy the pleasure is mine i have to say thank you i have to say thank you because i know that it's probably not very often that you will have a lifelong Philadelphia fan grace these airwaves of yours. And so uh, I was, uh, I was born in Baltimore, but raised in Philadelphia and a fan of all things Philly. So there's there's a very good chance that you and I would not get along in person, but the one thing that you and I do love uh, both love is baseball. And so we can spend the next 15 minutes talking about baseball, hopefully without killing each other. (laughs) <laughs> no,
0: no, no. Hey, hey uh, any, any diehard fan is an A-plus an fan in my book. It doesn't matter who you root for. I'm one of those crazy Mets fans who really doesn't bother with the uh, with the rivalry side of things. I just appreciate good ball. Well,
2: oh, tremendous. Well, we'll have, we'll have a great conversation, though. I'm really looking forward to diving in.
0: Oh, really? I, I, I thrilled to have you on, man. We had Greeny on last week, and of course, congratulations on the new book you guys are releasing this week, I believe.
2: Yes. uh, The book is called Got Your Number. Uh, What we have done is written 100 essays, numbers 1 through 100. We have decided who owns every number in sports, 1 through 100. So far, the reception has been overwhelmingly positive. Now, there's kind of two uh, tentpoles, if you will, to the project. Uh, Half of it is sports debate. Most of that was done outside the book when Greedy and I had to kind of decide and really hunker down and say – who owns each of these numbers considering there's obviously many numbers for which you can make a credible case for multiple people. Um, And the second piece of things, and this is kind of what I major in, uh, I'm not a very old person, at least not by industry standards. I'm, I'm 32, but I love sports history. I, I live and breathe sports history. I have a chance to do all sorts of cool on-air stuff now, but at my bones at my core, the ethos of my career, I'm a researcher, man. And that's kind of how I made a name for myself at ESPN. So I took enormous pride in, in being able to put together the very best numbers that money can buy for each of these 100 chapters. So there's a really good chance that you won't agree with each of the choices that we made. But I can say for sure that every one of them is defensible based upon the data. And that's kind of the point. The whole point is to kind of spark debate to to, to engender interest in that regard, because ultimately, if you can't debate such things as a sports fan, <laughs> there's really no purpose of enjoying this stuff as much as we do. So the book is called Got Your Number and we're thrilled with uh, the reaction that we've received and the product that we've been able to put forth for fans. It's been really really something else and it's the first thing of its kind they've ever done. So it's a it's a pleasure to talk with you about it, and I very much appreciate the platform.
0: Oh, of course, man. And and really it must have been such a thrill to go through the process and and whittling down um of course, if guys if you haven't checked it out yet, there are a couple of Mets notes in the book. Um I spoke last week about the Seaver. Uh of course, this it, really it's really tough to put anyone near number 41. Um what were your views your your views on it? I guess we're we're close to the same age. I'm late 30s. You're early 30s. Um, you know, as a Mets fan, I might be a little bit biased. Uh, you know, it's tough to hold the candle from Seaver to let's say Dirk Nowitzki. What were you view your views on that? I mean, Nowitzki's an inner circle Hall of Famer.
2: Yes, um, it, it is my belief that that Tom Seaver owns the number 21, and even in relation to Dirk, who is, <laughs> I mean, Dirk is. You uh, know, among the 15 or 20 greatest basketball players of all time, I would say, and, and and really redefined a position, was the best player on a championship team. And they would probably be the two finalists, probably for such a thing. It's also a number that was worn by Weddy, by Eddie Matthews, by Wes Unseld in college, by Glenn Rice and Glenn Davis. I mean, we went deep, we went deep cuts here. Like there was there was no stone unturned in my research process, as you might imagine. But ultimately, I think you can make a pretty credible argument that Tom Seaver is the best pitcher to debut in the last 100 years. I mean, think about this. Tom Seaver won 300 games. Tom Seaver had a sub-3 ERA. Tom Seaver struck out more than 3,000 batters. 300, sub-3, 3,000. I'm going to read for you the entire list of pitchers in baseball history to do them. Those pitchers are Walter Johnson and Tom Seaver, the greatest pitcher that ever lived and Tom Seaver. There are any number of reasons why I believe Seaver deserved it. To me, Nowitzki is a perfect example of someone for whom you could justify making the case for, and I think there are a lot of fans that might well do that. But ultimately, for us, it was Tom Seaver based upon his significance, his position, and you also have to take into account the cultural significance of the team on which he pitched. His legend has endured, and in some cases, that was an easy tiebreaker for us. Dirk Nowitzki, obviously, a more contemporary athlete, but who's to say that 30 years from now, Dirk Nowitzki's legend will have endured as long as Tom Seaver's had. In some sense, the longer you've been retired in this case, it may have even helped Seaver to some degree. But ultimately, even 30 years from now, Tom Seaver is going to be my answer as to who owns the number 41.
0: Now, here's a hypothetical. You being a Phillies fan. um, Let's say you're writing this book again in a couple of decades. And of course, it's going to be very tough to, to compete with a guy like Babe Ruth at number three. Hmm. Bryce Harper who's changed numbers since he came over to the Phillies and for the next oh I don't know well 13 years going on his his contract uh beginning um you know if he puts together a Hall of Fame career could he enter the realm of let's I mean Babe Ruth of course as you guys as you guys are going to see in this book um Legacy is just as important as stats and you'll see that in a lot of examples throughout the book you know Legacies can change. Legacies can can improve. Legacies can can be downgraded. You know, do you think there's ever someone who can knock off a a number three in Babe Ruth, a number 23 in Michael Jordan, a number 99 in Wayne Gretzky? I mean, are these unbeatable or unreachable plateaus for for
2: athletes, you know, in as far as uniform numbers are concerned? I would say so. I would say that there are probably somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen athletes um, in our book whose legacies and ownership of their respective numbers are frankly etched in stone. So Babe Ruth at three is a perfect example. Tom Brady at 12 is another example. Michael Jordan at 23. Jackie Robinson at 42. Wayne Gretzky at 99, you mentioned. I mean, there are some athletes for whom it would be exceedingly difficult to usurp. Now, there are certain athletes, let's say Patrick Mahomes wears number 15. You know, we finished this book like a year ago, and so he was still one Super Bowl shy of where he is now. It takes so long to create a book, and it's very difficult for us to project, right? It's very difficult to say, like, I'll use use another contemporary athlete as an example. So Giannis, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo wears the number 34, right? 34 is also worn by Walter Payton. Charles Barkley, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Ortiz. Like, how am I supposed to to compare a a 20-something basketball player to athletes of yesteryear whose legends have been well-established, you know? So that's going to be sort of a fun thing as this book uh, evolves over time and as athletes' career. Like, there will definitely be alterations that you might make over the course of time. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next version of this book, Aaron Judge owns number 62. Like, Roger Maris, in our book, owns number 61. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the, the beauty of it. But in some cases, because this is such an historical perspective on sports, the older you were, the longer your legend has endured, the better chance you had to make our book. Some of the numbers that I just described, some of the numbers that you just described probably aren't going anywhere. So someone like Bryce Harper probably is never going to make the book. He wore 34 and three. Those are tough. <laughs> but there are some numbers that are much less tough that you might see athletes um, of, of contemporary athletes someday crack should their careers continue on an upward trajectory. That's Awesome.
0: Uh, and you know it it certainly leaves the door open for uh for for more iterations of the list and and now this was your first i guess your first foray into uh, into authoring or co-authoring a book
2: yeah so i'm not <laughs> it's funny on one of our first like calls with the with the publishing company i i, I had admitted to these people like I've never written anything longer than like 10, a 10,000-word 10, term paper. So uh, uh, let alone a, a book uh, that is thick and jam-packed with information like this. That's kind of the beauty of, of our process here. To, to just give you a quick peek behind the curtain in case you're interested or curious into such a thing. So the way that I'm describing this to people is like the, the numbers are mine and the words are greenies. And the combination has created this kind of unique storytelling perspective for which we're very, very proud. And so what you're going to get in this book is the kind of uh, hardcore, cold, calculated data, the objectivity, the here's why this person is so great, and here's proof positive why they deserve this number. And you're going to get Greeny's, you know, decades-long career as a commentator and broadcaster and writer in this industry to kind of weave that stuff together in, in 100 sort of snackable bite-sized narratives. The combination thereof has, you know, we're we're really proud of, of what we have produced. That's kind of the process by which we got here. I wouldn't be at all surprised if I did something in the future independently, if he and I did something in the future together again, because this, frankly, has been a rip-roaring success so far. And for that, we're obviously endlessly grateful to you and others like you who are, you know, blasting us out and, and are buying our book. But ultimately, that's kind of where we came from. My numbers, his words, and what we got in the middle was got your number, and, and we're hopeful that people enjoy it as much as you have.
0: Oh really? It was a tremendous read. You, yeah. Let me ask
2: you that. Let me ask. You, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm, I'm hijacking your own show. Uh, <laughs> you, you can you can say all the platitudes. You can say all the nice things. I, I want to know more critically though. Like I want to know what surprised you. I want to know what what, what shocked you. I want to know what you would have done differently. I want to know um, what 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 perhaps a case in which we changed your mind after reading the essay. So I'm putting you on the spot here. But get, any of those any of those answers might apply. But I'm just curious as one who has read the book clearly and obviously. What's look out? Uh, what stood out? you well you know i obviously the
0: first place i turned was Seaver, and um i thought that was just a, a wonderful touch and again you know even as i was waiting for it to arrive i'm like well it's got to be you know, you look you, you're you're kind of thinking through them it's like well it's got to be Seaver. and then you flip through and it's like you know some of them were were expected of course and some of them you know you, you just unexpected complete. like I'm not a big um uh, motorsports guy but you saw Jimmy Johnson pop up in the book and he say well that's oh. a, that's a pretty good pick he had a very good run you know um talked about it last week the 86 mets popping up for for number 86 I mean you guys really could have went in a number direct a number of directions but when you talk about domination when you talk about owning the number you know it, you guys took different directions in different places and no matter what it always kind of worked um i'm trying to pull up i have my little post-its here
2: <laughs> well, while you're standing through because you, you hit on a point that is, is is exceedingly important to me so i think traditionally the average person would naturally think that we have attached what, 100 numbers to 100 jersey numbers to 100 athletes what green i really wanted to do however was uh represent american sporting life in a wide range right so Of our 100 chapters, believe it or not, only 56 are attached to athlete jersey numbers. 20 chapters are attached to records. So the aforementioned Roger Maris, spoiler alert, owns number 61. And we get into that magical year for him. There are 18 of these chapters that are attached to years. So think about the year 1973, the Battle of the Sexes, Billie Jean King over Bobby Riggs, one of the most culturally significant events in the history of American sports, right? That uh, Billie Jean King in in, in our book, spoiler alert, owns number 73. So what you have to do is almost kind of condition your brain to not really know what to expect, because we have individual uh, uh, athletes in this book that didn't play team sports. We have golfers. We have tennis players. Like you mentioned, we have a couple drivers. We have a horse, for God's sake. And so I think it's a very it's a fresh outlook. On like an idea, an idea that I think is novel, but the way that we executed it with things aside from jersey numbers, and all candor, is the thing for which I'm the most proud.
0: Well, the eighty through the uh, nineteen eighty three NFL draft coming up is number eighty three. I thought it was a perfect touch because that's just an untouchable class of of quarterbacks.
2: Six quarterbacks going in the first round there. I mean, their story needed to be told, and every single year when you have three, four, five quarterbacks that wind up going in the first round of the draft, now inevitably half of them stink, right? Uh, uh, Q and all of our uh, Jets fans and Zach Wilson, right? But like the 1983 quarterback draft is the one by which all quarterback drafts are measured. Like, how would you, how would you adequately describe the last 100 years in American sports without including that or some component of that? The, I mean, the NFL draft is massive. So it's things like that that we sprinkle in throughout the book for which I'm exceedingly proud. And, you know, obviously there's going to be any number of uh, jersey numbers that will be familiar or not or unfamiliar. But ultimately, it's those things that I think provide our book a special touch.
0: Oh, and I think that coming out when it did, right right around the time of, of baseball season hitting and then that's that new season baseball smell. Um, you know, it ties in very well. And and I know baseball's kind of your thing. I think I believe you were a college player,
2: right? I was a division two college player and the all time leader, uh, at Cedarville University, a division two school in Ohio in career walks. Um, I have a, a very curious 298, 450, 350 career slash line. So I was kind of a punch and Judy, uh, nearly as many walks as hits, very few extra base hits, as you can, uh, as you can tell, evidenced by my slash line. So I did play baseball at a reasonably high level, but it was pretty clear that if I couldn't hit a double, I was not going to be able to uh, change my metal bat. To a wood one, and then go play in the minor leagues. That was for sure.
0: Hey, it's an op. It's eight hundred ops in my book, man. You, you're that's the right. World. My weighted runs created plus one forty. I'll take. All that. right. Yeah, that's a that's a, uh, a, a straw that stirs the drink.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's leadoff hitter. I, you will never see me hitting in the middle of any lineup, though. That is for sure.
0: <laughs> now you you said you grew up a Phillies fan. Um, I think last year was probably a, a very good example. We're going to tie in Mets and Phillies here. Mm. You could win 101 games, sneak in well, on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, sneak into the dance, get really hot, and, and make it to the promised, well, almost to the promised land. What were your takeaways, and what are your takeaways going into the
2: season in a really tough NL East? Yeah, the, the National League East this year is going to be an absolute meat grinder. Um I'm going to circle back to, to to the first part of your question and give you my high level thought on on last year. And candidly, it was unexpected. Uh, I was pretty late to the Phillies train. My buddies uh, that live in the city were getting on me in July and August and trying to convince me, like this team is different. Like under Rob Thompson, this team is different. This team is hitting different. This team has the ingredients for a postseason run. And by the end, I got on board to such a degree to where I picked the Phillies to beat the Cardinals in the best of three. But candidly, no, not n- n- not in my wildest dreams but I have imagined that the Phillies would have come two games shy of winning the world series. Now, some people might think that's the bug in baseball's tournament uh, and postseason. I, I think it's a feature uh, perhaps we, we yearn for a time uh, for which the regular season meant more. I'm sorry to say that that ship has sailed and it works both ways. And so I was, in, I was incredibly surprised and obviously smitten by the event uh, of the Phillies run to, to the, to the world series and absolutely did not see it coming even until the very end as it relates to this year. I think it's pretty clear that your team is the second best in the division. Mine is the third best in the division and, and the Braves are going to run away with this thing. I hate to say it. <laughs> I think the Braves have a chance to win hundred games again, maybe even a little bit more because I think they have the most, they have the most like uh, um, replicable, sustainable formula. Like they have the, like the, the, the foundation with a, a good group of, of young position players, plenty of pitching both in the rotation and in the bullpen and a general manager that is a wizard at the trade deadline. The Mets are going to be great. And, and once once JV and Scherzer are at the top of that rotation shoving, no one wants to see them in a playoff series. That goes without saying. We know this. But it is my belief that over 162, it's the depth of 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 talent on the roster. It's 1 through 40. It's not 1 through 10. It's not 1 through 15. And that's where the Braves really separate themselves, in my judgment, from the Mets and from the Phillies, all three teams will make the playoffs. Although, if you ask me a week from now, and the Phillies are like two and eight with a ten bullpen ERA, I might have my my opinion might be changed on the matter. I'm not trying to panic. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm doing the very best I can. So I'm going to say Atlanta wins the division. The Mets finish second with a 95 plus win team, and I still think the Phillies are going to be a playoff team. I'm not ready to panic after an 0 four start.
0: No, no, I, not with that offense. Absolutely not, um, especially now with Trey Turner in the mix. Um, I think, you know, Wheeler and and Noah atop that rotation is is always going to be a threat as long as everyone stays healthy. Um, this is a 1A, 1B, 1C type of top of the division. And I think, you know, we saw Miami do a couple of really nice things in their home series. You know, they lost three out of four, but you certainly see the, uh, the trajectory that that group is on um yeah I, I'm, I'm i'm expecting i think you said it before you put it perfectly it's going to be a meat grinder and whoever stays healthy whoever gets hot at the right times and with even fewer interdivision games um you know beating your your interdivision rivals is probably going to be just as important as as going out and playing all 29 teams. I hate
2: the way that this stacks up because I used to feel this way about Baltimore and the American League East when they candidly weren't trying to win. But (laughs) the division this year might be decided by who beats up on the Nationals in their 14 meetings. You know, if you go eight and six versus the Nationals, you're not going to win the division. You're going to have to go 12 and two against uh, Washington this year to win the division because they're just so incredibly awful. I watched them play uh, games over the weekend against Atlanta. And I felt like I was watching a double A team. candidly. I mean, I think they're going to stink. I mean, I don't, That team could lose 110 games having to play 56 against, you know, the other four teams in the National League East. And that's kind of a thing about baseball right now that I don't love. There isn't enough anti-tanking incentivization in the latest CBA. And I'm not suggesting that the Nationals are tanking, but they certainly aren't putting together a, a forthright and competitive big league product. That's for sure. They're going to lose 110 games easily. And so how you those 14 games become almost must win. If you're uh, tangled with the top teams in your division, because those are all gimmick games, right? You're going to generally speaking go six and eight or eight and six or somewhere in between amongst those top three teams in the division, but you have to, you have to beat Miami and you have to have to beat Washington. If you want to win the National League East this year.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, you, you have to. And then, you know, for those 14, 15 games you're facing either the Braves or the Phillies, mm-hmm. you, you're going to have to, you know, stay neck and neck. Or if you can pull ahead, great. You gotta, And you're going to have to hold those uh hold positions because, you know, I, I hate to harp on the same thing, but we saw the Phillies get hot at the right time last year. We saw the Mets, you know, falter at the wrong time last year, and it made all the difference. So, yeah, I
2: need, I need to ask you just quickly before we move, move ahead. The decision, the DeGrom, effectively replacing DeGrom with Verlander. Now, obviously, Verlander's hurt already. DeGrom got lit up in his first game of the season. <laughs> On balance, Are you do you approve of the decision based upon how much each of those players cost?
0: Oh, money-wise? Uh, yeah, well, you know, Verlander, since he's come back from Tommy John, um, he, he's been good. Uh, you know, I believe his innings pitched were only at like 175 last year, but oh. as long as they can make that work over 162 games or 32 starts, whatever it works out to, that's fine. That'll, that'll work for everyone. I think money wise, um, you know, personally I think the Mets were probably expecting DeGrom to be back. He left and that's fine and, and good for him and good for the Rangers. They looked all right over the weekend. They scored a bunch of runs over uh, opening weekend. You know, the Mets, if you have to pivot when a guy like Jacob Degrom leaves, I think pivoting to to Justin Verlander is probably the best uh, you know the best movie can make.
2: And you could do a lot worse, most definitely. And the last question I would ask you about the Mets and their in our you know high level big picture future is the elephant in the room for for the Mets and for other high, big market teams is like Shohei Ohtani, right? The question is. Like how how many hundreds of millions of dollars are you willing to forfeit? How many people have you assigned in your front office to literally preparing that PowerPoint <laughs> for Shohei Otani and his agent? Because we know there's a pre existing relationship with Billy Epler, which is potentially enormous. From, from everything that I know, that's a it's a, it's a it's a good relationship and I wouldn't say the reason they hired him, but definitely a reason why you would feel really confident about your chances at Otani, based upon where things stand right this second. Right, we know the Carlos Correa thing fell through, whatever that's worth. There might be more money available. Do you feel like good, bad, or somewhere in between about the possibility of of signing Shohei Otani this offseason? season? The possibility of of signing him, I think it's
0: at this point a coin flip. Um, I think the Mets are in very good position to make every attempt to bring him here if he's interested in leaving Los Angeles, if he's interested in coming to the East Coast. Which I believe when he was posted and when he was originally, you know, deciding where to go, um, he was favored, you know, or at least favoring the the West Coast, California, Seattle, uh, what yeah. have you. Um, you know, if the Mets really do want to make a push, I think they are. Uh, they have. They certainly have the. The, the financial backing to do it. Um, and where else are you going to get this type of player on any market, whether it's trade, free agency draft, you're not going to face a unicorn.
2: Yeah. That's why I would still favor the Dodgers for, you know, many of the reasons that you articulated. I mean, they have, they have been saving for this. They have the West coast in their favor. They have the promise that you're going to be good every single year. They have a front office that I'm sure has already a d- definite plan as to how they'll use him. And that has to be important to show Heyo but what I think needs to not be overlooked is the fact that Steve Cohen didn't just buy his favorite baseball team to play fantasy baseball. Like what, what Steve Cohen wants to do is not build a winner every year. Steve Cohen wants to build an empire. And, and, if, and if that is your objective, you can't do better than Shohei Otani. You can't do better than a, a two-way player who is literally an ATM for your organization organization who is the closest thing to Babe Ruth, not just in skill, but in terms of global impact upon baseball. And so to me, it will wind up being those two teams. And the, at the very end, there will be others that are in the mix. But it will be a Mets versus Dodgers sort of standoff at the end of the season. Both teams are going to be excellent this year. But the the, the sort of looming uh, Otani free agency is going to honestly hover above baseball throughout the whole season. And I, for one, am here for it. Oh, absolutely. And,
0: and you know... <sighs> If the Angels can somehow get their stuff together, they have, uh, you know, a historic base in Trout and Otani. You just, if they haven't made it work yet, you have to almost assume that they're really not trying to to make it work. And, you know, I guess time will tell, but, um, you know, the Mets have pretty much since Cohen came on, they said, we want to be, you know, Dodgers East. And, you know, whether it's building out the internal – you know, uh, infrastructure of the organization, whether it's, you know, just trying to build on-field sustainable success um, and, you know, disregarding the cost, which is pretty much what the Mets have done is uh,
2: at least this past offseason. Yeah, you know, yeah I think not- you have that right. That's Dodgers the model and th- and they're the standard by which all teams are comparing themselves. Even this, despite the lack of, you know, World Series, it's the, it's the sustainable, machine-like, ridiculous win totals year over year that you assume over the course of time We'll produce some championships yeah it's culture
0: and i think that's you know for teams that are that actually want to take that step i think that's absolutely a blueprint sure. now you said uh, i, I want to ask you about the orioles because you said that you, you, you came up a, a baltimore fan yes and now we and I, I don't want to get into ownership because you know their follies are, are that's probably a whole nother <laughs> uh a, podcast right but the future that they've I guess the, the the core they've put together in the in the Mullins and the Hayes, the future that's coming up now, the future that's even down the road, and guys like Grayson Rodriguez, is this also a blueprint for a quote unquote smaller market team?
2: Uh, the answer is yes, although the Orioles should not be a smaller market team. They play one of the most beautiful stadiums in the country. They have an excellent fan base that that roots for the team so long as the ownership is is attempting to win games, right? Which they weren't even really doing last year, and they still won a lot of games. Like They're at least a year ahead of schedule. I'm excited about the crop of young talent that they have. They have as good a system as anybody in baseball. They have as good a crop of young players already in the big leagues as any in baseball. There's no question, in order to compete in that division, they're going to have to do a lot of it internally. And you're going to have to add your ancillary pieces, your finishing pieces from the outside the way that the Cubs did in 2015 and 2016 to to sort of reach the top of the mountain. I have to say though, like Gunnar Henderson's awesome. I think Grayson Rodriguez is going to be great. Cedric Mullins is a stud, the player for whom I, like I see Adley Rutschman as a hall of fame talent. I mean, I view Adley Rutschman as the kind of catcher that comes along very rarely. I mean, I would, like to, 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 to compare him to Buster Posey or Joe Mauer from a, from an impact standpoint, frankly might be selling him short. That's how good he is. I mean, his ability to be a switch hitting catcher who can control the strike zone like that, with that much power, with that ability to, to handle a pitching staff and control the run game. I mean, he does everything well on a baseball field. Adley Rutschman, I think, but look again, I mean, Philly's fan now, by the end of the season, JT Real Muto will not be considered the best catcher in baseball. Adley Rutschman will be. Adley Rutschman over the second half of last season was as good as any position player in the sport, not named Aaron Judge or Shohei Otani's bat, of course. Rutschman's already a star. He was, he raked over the weekend. I have, I see very few flaws in his game. I think you're looking at a player who's going to be a potential generational Hall of Fame talent at his position. And I hope that the Orioles lock him up ASAP, because if they don't, over the course of time, it will become apparent that he won't want to stay there, and that a whole song and dance will continue. It is vital that the Orioles lock up Adley Rushman and do so as soon as possible.
0: I'm right on the nose that Baltimore, if utilized correctly, because this could be a you know a, a, a crown jewel franchise. They're just they have that much wonderful history. But yep, now I'm not 100 percent familiar with Rushman's defensive game. Do you think he can be the the backstop that real Muto is to make him that, that complete catcher that really you don't see very often.
2: It's hard to say for sure. Like that's catching is a skill that is, that is not that you're not born with, but Adley Rutschman has all of the attributes. If you look at the metric, the blocking, the framing, the pop time, uh, the improvement of the pitching staff last year, once he came up, I mean, last year he uh, using Statcast data, he led baseball blocking he was the number one blocking catcher in the whole sport i mean adley rutt he was he was considerably above average when it when it comes to his framing you know and, and when it comes to his throwing he was also considerably above average so if you're going to blend the three things that matter right now with a catcher he was plus or plus plus in all three and let's 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 take into account the fact now that that stolen bases are more than doubling year over year because of all the rules the, the expanded bases the disengagements the pitch clock, all of the things you know what that's going to mean? That's going to mean until we have, um, until we have, especially I should say, uh, when we have automatic UMPs down the road. It's going to matter a lot how uh, your catcher's ability to control the run game, right? Right. I mean, especially now, like having someone like J.T. Realmuto or Adley Rutschman or someone else that can really, really throw is a huge benefit to your pitching staff, a huge benefit to your team because now the break-even point for sto- for stolen bases is going to change because it's so much easier to do. If we're, I don't know that we're going to see stolen bases truly double year over year. There's going to have to be some adjustment when it comes to pitching staff because right now I'm seeing guys 1-3, 1-4, 1-5 to the plate, which is just not going to work. It's steadfastly ridiculous. But if you have Real Muto behind the plate, if you have Rutschman behind the plate, all of a sudden that skill is evidently more valuable than it was before. And so I'm going to be charting that throughout the season, taking into account who throws the best and how well you can suppress opponent uh, running game because that's a, a much bigger part of baseball now than it ever was before. We're playing baseball in the eighties again from that standpoint, and so a catcher like that has enormous value to your pitching staff and to your into your organization. Oh, it's going to be tremendous, and I think the Mets,
0: you know, looking down the road a little bit, and I think they're still working on his defense. But Francisco Alvarez is another guy who's got a you know plus plus hit tool who you know can just destroy left handed pitching, and you you love to see that, and um. You know, it kind of checks all the boxes for what you want to see in an up and coming catcher, and I'm not sure if he can hit all the marks that that Rutschman's hitting. And of course, I think Real Muto is probably the blueprint for what you want to see of just well rounded, um, right? The point of view, but yeah, you have to kind of wonder um, the new data that that catchers have, the, the that teams and organizations have, the the just the additional point of views for or, or ways to gauge progress and right. how how much quicker these developmental stages are going to be breezed through, whether it's Rutschman, whether it's Alvarez, whether you're looking at, you know, a positional player just, oh, hey, guys, you know, if you're, you're, you're coming an extra six inches off the bag at third base uh, as, as a defender, you know, you're getting to like maybe like 10 or 12% more balls just something to keep in mind and you know it's something that
2: players didn't have before you have to wonder how that's going to progress no doubt i'll, I'll leave it with this on alvarez like he is a precocious hitter I, I don't exactly know what he'll become as a defender but it was an 880 ops last year in the minor leagues and 510 plate appearances 509 of them all but one were against pitchers that were older than he is it's a great metric it's a great way to uh, evaluate a, a young hitter in the minor leagues because obviously, like if you're facing older pitchers and dominating, it's a very good sign. It's very predictive, and so there's no obvious reason to believe that he won't hit the you know the living daylights out of the baseball once he becomes an everyday player in the big leagues. The defense, I think, is something of a work in progress, but I think frankly that's the case for almost every catcher in the minor leagues that is not a unicorn. Oh yeah, and you could even look at Ronnie Mauricio and like yeah,
0: he's been playing above his age level. I believe he's like an average of three years below the average league age. Right. throughout his minor league career and now you know he's not that lanky kid anymore he's putting on weight he's up to like six four now he looks like a just a big ready for major league time talent and um you know the the i guess speaking to what you were saying about you can see the progress even more distinctly when you're facing that up that I guess increased level uh, of competition
2: and especially in the Dominican winter leagues this year. No, yeah. no doubt. No doubt. There's a lot to be excited about there, man. I, I think you, you were on the right track look at us promoting a book and we wound up getting Ronnie Mauricio on the, on the podcast. There, <laughs> I, I'd be stunned if that, if that name came out of Mike Greenberg's mouth and you did this, if uh, <laughs> I just had to guess.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, Hey man, before we hit record, you're like, Hey, welcome. You're more than welcome to get into baseball. And I think we, we absolutely did.
2: Absolutely. Like no, I could talk about minor league baseball, until the end of time, but at that point, you would lose all of your listeners, that I can assure you. So I'm honestly doing you a favor by cutting you off at this point.
0: Oh, hey, man. <laughs> no, Mets fans are absolutely wild about their prospects these days, so we might have to bring you back and talk. Uh, do this midseason once we
2: get a good look at what's going on in the uh, in the minors. Tremendous. I very much appreciate the opportunity and the platform. Can I plug the book once more? Of course, please. The book is called Got Your Number. It's written by Mike Greenberg. It's researched by me. Uh, what we, we have done is assigned every number in sports, one through one hundred. We answer the question, who owns it? It's out now. It's available now anywhere you buy your books. It's called Got Your Number. We're so excited about it. If you're a Mets fan, you're going to love Chapter 41, and you are going to love Chapter 86, right? Do I have that right? That's correct. Tremendous. I appreciate it very much.
0: Hambo. I really can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, guys, everybody, uh, check out uh, the ESPN radio broadcast. Greeny, Hambo's co-host there, uh, producer on Get Up in the Morning, and, of course, get your copy of got your number it's uh just a wonderful read uh go start arguments with your buddies man it's what it's, it's really uh, that's the uh, the crux of it right there <laughs> you're a good man all right paul we'll see you. we'll talk to you soon man peace
1: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: And welcome back. You may know our next guest from Sunday nights on WFAN covering New York sports and then some. Uh, It's a pleasure to welcome Lori Rubinson to the show. Welcome, Lori.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Tim.
0: Well, I mean, I know we spoke probably going back to the Queens Baseball Convention two years ago uh, saying, oh, we should really do this one time. And then we did it again this winter and said, "Okay, now we have to we'll put we'll we'll write this down in pencil. We'll have to move forward on this. And finally, we get to uh, we get to chat
3: shout out to the to the folks who run the queens baseball convention it's uh it's a fun time and i've been really happy to be a part of it the last couple of years oh it's a great
0: time you can actually feel it like building steam over the last couple of years i know this year in flushing at the uh at the hotel center was just a blast what a great day
3: yeah and i had the privilege of interviewing former Mets uh third baseman and standout Howard Johnson who uh, was obviously a great player and a terrific guy. So it was a lot of fun for me. I enjoyed it.
0: Oh, it was a great day. Those you know, the, the whole gang there is is, uh, is excellent. Yep. But um and of course everyone if you haven't listened to uh to Laurie's show on FAN, it's generally on at 10 p.m. on Sunday nights and it it really you guys cover the gamut and it's uh terrific work. It's it's become almost like uh, like clockwork. It's like, all right, let's close out the weekend in style and listen to Laurie. But um, you have to be uh, kind of enjoying the uh, the new baseball season smell. Right. with can do with the show?
3: Yeah, you know, you're right. I love Sunday nights on WFAM because regardless of what season we're in, it's an opportunity. So much of sports happens over the weekend and that Sunday night show becomes, you know, allows me to be one of the people who plays a role in shaping how we feel and think about the stories that happened over the weekend, and especially on Sundays. And so that's really fun for me. And I I like to picture that I keep people company on Sunday night, wherever it is they are driving home from a weekend or working late at night, all of that. So I really enjoy that. And, And the start of the baseball season, New York is probably One of the few true baseball towns in America. So many cities, you know, clearly football is king and we love football here in New York as well. And you can say that basketball on the streets of New York is so important, all of that. But we are a baseball town, St. Louis. You know, there are a few others, but 24-7 in New York City, you can on WFAN, you can talk baseball and you, you know. Open the phone lines, give out the number, and people will call in and want to talk Yankees Mets. They will want to talk baseball 24 7.
0: And it's, I guess it's been. Uh, kind of a whirlwind over the last couple of years with the lockout and the, all the CBA discussions. And now the rule changes this year. It's, it hasn't just been the normal, you know, Mets, Yanks, you know, whether it be a hot stove talk or, or now with the, with the season getting uh, kicking off, there's been, you know, constant news cycle as far as baseball throughout the winter.
3: Yeah. There's always a story. You'd be surprised. Um, that <laughs> is part of the news cycle, um, but you're right. There's genuine news in this way we have the rule changes which we can dive into i've been very public in saying i am a huge advocate for the rule changes i was in favor of them before they came out uh you know before uh, the season started um so i'm a big um proponent advocate for them i have a tweak i would probably do on on one of them but but other than that a big fan of the rule changes but i also I'm struck, as you say, that the changes of the last couple of years, the other thing that feels different to me. And I was talking to one of my producers about this last night at WFAN in the studio, actually off air, but it's how. The expectations moving forward, the new normal for Mets fans Mm -hmm. is that I look across the landscape of New York sports and we, over the last few years prior to let's say this last 12 months or so, we've been in a really poor time for New York sports. A lot of our teams have stunk and suddenly not only are teams across all sports doing better and on sort of an upswing and the Yankees are the Yankees and they'll continue to be and, and have a standard of, you know, if they don't win the world series, They obviously they don't consider it successful and all that, but that they make the playoffs consistently. And what I was thinking about last night was that with Steve Cohen's Mets, the Mets now, I'm not going to say it's, it's not that same Yankee standard of expectations yet where, which I'm not sure if that's a, a, a good thing or healthy thing to say, if we don't win the world series, this season was a failure but there is i think a fair expectation that this should be a team that is a consistent playoff team post season team and that you go into a season having a fair reasonable expectation that your favorite team can be a post season team every year based on player you know investment and development and resources and management and everything that's you know, uh, invested in it—that is not a small thing when we consider the last few decades of, of you know, the last decades of being a, a Mets fan.
0: Oh, I, I'm a I'm a lifelong Mets fan, and and this is all very new and very exciting. It, it, I mean, I'm sure I'm speaking for many fans at this point. which it's, it, it's almost like a kid with a new toy. We don't know what to do. We're so excited. Like it's um, it, it's certainly a a sharp turn from, from where this franchise was, um, I, I, you know, I'm a little too young to remember New York truly being a Mets town in, you know, the mid eighties. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just a little kid then. I don't remember that the whole vibe that, that was going to the city, but from, you know, from all accounts, this was a Mets town. And I think, you know, for Mets fans, my age, or even Mets fans younger, I think that's almost what we've all been waiting for. And at this point, it almost just feels so close. It's, um, yeah, over the moon type of exciting.
3: Yeah, I think that I guess I'm not yet at a point of taking it for granted that there is a new normal for Mets fans. And I think it's something I hope Mets fans don't lose that sense of wonder. At some point you do when it becomes rote, when it becomes you know a few seasons in. Well, of course, the Mets are making the playoffs. Of course, that's the expectation. Um, it hasn't always been that way. And for so long, and so I think we're still new enough into that journey that the new normal for Mets fans to me is also, it's still a story.
0: Oh, absolutely. And
3: and I think that,
0: I guess, you know, just, just, just one Mets fan's point of view, but I think the last thing as a fan base we want to become is the quintessential, I don't want to put it all on Yankees fans, but, you know, the, the 162 one-game seasons that some Yankee fans kind of live out, I guess expectations will bring that sort of mindset to, to being a fan. I guess you almost have to it's, I guess, curtail that as, as a fan of a team with high expectations. And, you know, keep in mind this is a very long season. You know, there's going to be losses. There's going to be some really bad losses. And I can think it's all about – bouncing back it's all about getting hot when when you have to and you know um big picture is such a it, it kind of goes hand in hand with baseball and I think regardless of the expectations um just the magic of the game and the process of the game where anything can happen I think it's got to stay in kind of the front of Mets fans minds despite expectations and and payroll and uh you know just everything tied, tied along with this organization right now, where you could see the trajectory they're on.
3: Yeah. I, I would say my perception of Yankee fans is maybe it's almost the opposite, which is I think Yankee fans, in my experience, at least those that call into WFAN, that there is that perception of the the regular season is almost like you know what, get back to me when we're in October, Uh, Expect you know, 90 plus wins, of course. Um, Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's less of those one game seasons and more of let's see what they do in October. Um, What have you done for me lately? I think in in October is a Yankee fan perspective. So anyway, we'll see, but uh, (laughs) that's a big picture, but um, what, you know, uh, I don't know what you want to dive into. I'm happy to dive into whether it's, uh, you know, baseball, football, any topic, um, uh, you know, what, what? I don't know what you had on your mind.
0: <laughs> well, I guess going off what you were just saying, as far as getting it done in the postseason, you know, last year, the Mets, you could almost see it coming through the latter end of the season and in the postseason, they kind of fell flat. Do you feel that this group and this team, this organization and all the momentum they have, do you feel like they did enough to keep up with the expectations that they're going to, Show progress every year, and you know, hitting the postseason every year is no nothing to shake a stick at. But advancing every year and showing that tangible progress—that's you know—that's going to come along with, uh, I guess, the bed they've made, right?
3: So I'll give you the objective, reasonable member of the media perspective. <laughs> then I'll give you my Mets personal, my personal sort of Mets fan perspective. Sure. Um, as I see it as a reasonable member of the media, I would say that when you look at how many free agents the Mets had going into this off season, and what they had to replace so much of the starting rotation going, you know, being free agents, so much of the bullpen, practically almost no bullpen um, and, you know, key pieces like Nimmo, Gone, you know a set you know a free agent unless you bring him back. There were so many holes that had to be filled via free agency. And when I look at what Steve Cohen invested to try to keep a hundred and one win team that tied for the best record in the in the division, what they invested to keep the team whole and try and just match last season's performance, get yourself to the postseason. And then what we saw with the Phillies and others is once you get there, the anything can happen. I applaud and think they did well to try and put that together. Now. The fan in me agrees with Steve Cohen and the comments he made, the owner and the comments he made when the Mets were trying to sign Carlos Correa. and the owner saying we really need that one more piece to get over the hump. We and that they needed that one more impact bat. And I understand why they didn't sign that contract. You look at the medicals, the Giants, obviously a respected smart franchise, passed on it as well. So that's up to them in doing that. But when I look at this lineup, I do have a concern that there's still that too much is reliant on what's fun which is manufacturing runs but a balanced offense of a world series winning team ideally to me has more power has more home runs the mets i think tied for 20 uh tied for 15th so middle of the pack tied for 15th in home runs last season and I'd like I would have liked to have seen them add a little more power to this lineup. And so that's where that can come either from a big free agent signing, but also that could be, you know, the Mets do have some impact bats, potential impact bats on prospects that are sitting there in the minor leagues. And, you know, I, I was out on record. I'm one of these people that thinks Brett Beatty should be in there at third base, because I think the upside of an impact bat that could be a middle of the order impact 25 plus home run bat of a Beatty. I'd rather see that development and live with the lumps of that than an Eduardo Escobar, who I think they could use in a different role. But I, you know, to me, yes, I know he was great in September, but I'd I'd like to give that opportunity to Beatty. I think the odds of Beatty becoming an impact bat in the middle of this order to me are greater than Escobar at this point. I I tend
0: to agree with, to agree with you. I
3: I was okay with the
0: Mets going in the direction they did. Let's just see what we have here. Let's see if we can, if we can cut it with the group we have, you know, Beatty obviously has gone to the minors and he started off in Syracuse red hot. Um, you know, the Mets lack of a right handed D.H. or a regular dependable right handed D.H. It has been brought up and they have had good um, production out of out of Canna and um, and uh, Tommy Pham over the weekend. And that was really nice to see. But as you were saying, bringing Beatty up, allowing his bat to develop and with Escobar kind of letting him shift into new roles. You know, yeah, he had a really, really nice late August, September last season. But over the course of the whole season where it's not a small sample size, he had a OPS over 800 against left-handers. So there's certainly a, a workable option in there. But, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty much comfortable that this team will shift when necessary and kind of do what they have to. Are you concerned that Billy Epler and, and company will, you know, hold off on on making changes and let's see if this works or, you know, was the release of Darren Ruff an encouraging sign for what we might see?
3: I'm not concerned that they'll, that they won't make moves. I mean, it started with releasing Robinson Cano, uh, you know, and then it was um, rough. So I, I think they had to make that move with Darren Ruff. I was on record also on saying (laughs) the night before it happened, just that it would have been cruel for them to have kept him at the home opener and have where you announce all the players and have subjected him to, you know, here's a happy home opener right? all the players, everybody's getting cheered and Darren Ruff comes out and, and everybody booze. So, uh, you know, they, I, they made the right move. You admit, you make a mistake sometimes in a trade, it doesn't work out and you move on. Some players can't play in New York. Maybe he's was injured. Maybe he's getting older, whatever it is. And you move on. So, no, I think that they will make moves when they need to. And I think that's part of what having Steve Cohen as an owner, and the combination of somebody who has the money and successful resources is used to being a success in business and has the mindset of a Mets fan. I I don't see them being sitting around forever. So I think Escobar has, I think he has about three weeks to get that, you know, I don't think he has three months to get that back going. I think he has about three weeks to get that back going. And by, by early May, if that bat is not going, I would expect we will see Brett Beatty called up and installed as the Mets third baseman and Escobar. Yeah, maybe Escobar gets some starts at third where, uh, you know, when he's batting right handed, can um, be a righty DH at times, can sub in in other places. But I think he's really important from a clubhouse chemistry standpoint. I think he serves a role. He is a major league caliber baseball player, but I I still think this Mets lineup needs at least one more impact bat with home run power potential. And Brett Biddy could be that. So let's see.
0: Yeah, it could be. I'm still, you know, I'm looking at my crystal ball and I see a power hitter coming down, down the uh, turnpike at some point, but um, it's undoubtedly a good group. Um, you know, power aside, uh, this is a team who is, you know, top of the league in batting average, among the top of the league in on base, top of the league in runs. Um, I believe all top five, I want to say. And, and, you know, this is a, it, it's a good group. Like you said before, they won 101 games, but it's a very, very good division. And, and like we saw last year, you can win 101 games and and still it's it's not enough. So, yeah, I guess we shall see. Um, Lori, you brought up football. Do you mind if we get a quick uh, Preview on the uh, Giants Jets offseason plans from your point of view. Sure, happy to.
3: Um, I, I, go know, for it, go for it. Okay, uh, I was, you know, <laughs> uh, well, obviously, I think the focus, the Jets, you know, let's face it, we're all on the Aaron Rodgers watch um, going on there. I've what I found interesting there with just in terms of how my, my mind works in playing strategy and chess with these situations is I've been wondering, asking people and thinking about who has leverage in these negotiations between the Packers and the Jets. And I've seen people who say, well, the Packers have leverage because where else are the Jets going? At this point, they've built this win now roster and you know, kind of said that Aaron Rodgers is their guy, and so you know the Packers have leverage. And then I've seen the opposite, where well, the Jets have leverage because for the Packers, if it's not the Jets, are they really going to hang on to this contract? Can they bring Aaron Rodgers back? Where else do they have to go? And and I think the truth is that both sides, I don't, I don't know that either side has has any massive amount of leverage. But the the thing that I look at is. Right now, from a timing standpoint, the key date seems to me to be the NFL draft. And until the draft, the Packers can sit around and think that the Jets are going to somehow want to try and trade for Rodgers before the draft because they thought they want to get him into the building, meeting their players and you know all that sort of stuff. The Jets don't really care, I don't think. The key date with the draft is if you're the Packers, you want to make this trade for help in the 2023 draft now for you're your young quarterback and you want to try and build those, get those draft picks now because even next year, if you're getting, so let's say you get a second round draft pick this year from the Jets and you're getting a conditional draft pick next year. Well, if the Jets with Aaron Rodgers are a much better team, that conditional draft pick, regardless of what round it's in, it's going to be later. And so I just look at it and say, If you're the Packers, you have to get a high draft pick this year. And so I think this has been a game of chicken back and forth and whatever. But I think this will get resolved and that trade will happen, whether it's uh, by – you know, the end of the first night of the draft. But I think that we're on the clock for that. The Aaron Rodgers deal gets done. I don't think the Jets have any reason to give up a first round draft pick. I don't think the Packers have anywhere else to go. I think they need those draft picks to be part of this year's draft. So I think you're looking at a second round draft pick. Uh, The Jets have two of them and I think that's, you know, and then a conditional for next year. So I think that's what will happen there as for both teams and where do they go with the draft, which is really what we're focused on right now. (laughs) Giants will be interesting to see, do they what do they do at pick number twenty five? And the rebuild year one went much better than anyone expected. Um, The coaching staff made more with less than any of us expected. And so now they still have a roster that's year two of a rebuild, but overachieved last year. And they, They have a lot of options at 25. So one option potentially for the Giants could be that do they trade up um, a few spots if one of the top wide receivers are still on the board and there's somebody who they think is a wide receiver one? I could see that happening. Or do they stay where they are and it's supposed to be a deep – Defensive back cornerback draft. Do they stay where they are and draft a, a cornerback? Um, the Giants have so many needs still on this roster. I know they went to the playoffs last year, but they don't have a starting center, they don't have a, a number two cornerback. Um, they need another inside linebacker, they don't have a number one wide receiver. There's just a lot of needs on that Giants team. They don't, you know, really. They only have one starting safety. So there's there's a lot of holes on that roster. So it'd be interesting to see how much do they like one of those wide receivers? Do they trade up a few spots to go get someone? Or do they stay where they are or even trade back? Um, So a lot of things are in play um, with the Giants there. And then for the Jets, I think if you have an Aaron Rodgers at quarterback and a win-now team, uh, the biggest thing that I, you know, of course, you can fill other needs on the roster for the Jets, but the biggest thing they need to do is improve the offensive line. So I would expect the giant, the Jets, whether that's in the first round, the second round, somewhere in the first, um, I don't know, day one, day two, the Jets to make at least one draft pick to um, upgrade that that offensive line. That would be a big expectation for me.
0: Oh, I'm I'm actually looking for both the Jets and the Giants because I think this is going to be a, um, a a deep draft for for offensive linemen. I mean, there's really no blue chippers out there, but but you're going to have those whether it's interior hybrids, whether it's just you know ready, maybe not ready for for right tackle, but but sure, give me the uh, give me the left and and you know just see where it goes and um, really utilize those back end draft picks you know, to the fullest, they're so important. I and mean, we've seen how offensive lines can, you know, in some cases make or break a season. So, um, especially in the Giants case where you have so much going, you have uh, a great coaching staff, you have a really nice core. I think that's probably next on the list to reinforce, just if you want to go with the type of offense you're going with, where you want to keep your quarterback healthy, you want to keep that. <laughs> One of the more elite running backs in the league healthy, I like the Waller edition. I thought that was a really nice move instead of going tight end in the draft.
3: Yeah, what was interesting there. This is also um, supposed to be a really – I mean, it is a deep tight end draft, um, so there are tight end options available. But what I thought was creative there was that this is a week here in wide receiver free agency. And the Giants are drafting number 25 overall. You cannot guarantee that a wide receiver one type is going to be sitting there for you at number five. And so I thought it was creative of the Giants to and Joe Shane to take a look and say, all right, let's think more broadly. We need a number one receiving option. But it doesn't have to be a wide, you know, a wide receiver could be a tight end and there was Darren Waller available now the big question mark of course is that can he stay healthy if he's healthy for most of the season then this is a huge win and an incredible addition to the New York Giants who haven't had a player like him
0: oh that's maybe Jeremy Shockey was probably the last real you know tight end one that could that could catch passes like a wide receiver yeah I mean, Kevin Boston the Super Bowl uh, who was the other guy that season or the, one of those runs it's Kevin Boston, someone else, but you know, Eli got the most out of all of his receivers. It didn't matter their names, but I mean, you can go back to Mark. They
3: yeah. They tried obviously with Evan Ingram and drafting oh, right. yeah. one, And Ingram had the speed, but and fulfilled some of his talent and potential with, um, with Jacksonville last season, but, you know, never, just never fulfilled that potential with the giants dropped the ball too much. Uh, yeah. was you know, it just didn't work out. So, you know, I I think with the Giants, um, uh, oh Ballard, I think was who you were thinking of. Right? There you
0: go. Thank yeah. you, Lori.
3: Anyway, but um, but I think that um, it, yeah, the Giants just to, uh, to have that kind of receiving weapon. If he's healthy, that's the big if. If he's healthy, I think that my goodness, giving a creative offensive mind like Brian Dable a weapon a lep, a weapon like that to use and figure out um how to use on the field and I think the um with Daniel Bellinger the two tight end sets that we'll see and how they'll use the offense and both run and pass out of it and all of that I think it'll be really fun and interesting so assume if he's healthy uh, I thought that was a good creative move in an off season where there weren't a ton of wide receiver one type of options to be had.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know, like you said, they're so creative and it'll just, it'll garner so much more attention from the defense, especially if you are not plugging in, you know, plus, plus, plus star level guys at at various different positions. Um, Last one on the Giants, because somehow we've gotten into a Giants podcast, but that's okay. This is great. Um, Were you kind of taken back? By the I guess the progress that Dable got or that Dable was able to kind of cultivate out of Daniel Jones compared to the previous regime that that was kind of struggling to match DJ with a style that let him flourish.
3: No. And the reason, first of all, I admit that I've been probably um, a Daniel Jones apologist. (laughs) <laughs> years now. And I was probably an Eli Manning apologist before that and defender. And in the case of Daniel Jones, a lot of it's based on his rookie year and what we saw with Pat Shermer as the offensive play caller. And if you recall, in 12 uh, 12 starts that year, Daniel Jones threw 24 touchdown passes. And the big story of the year and the season was, oh my God, look at all the fumbles and the turnovers. And that was true. He turned the ball over a ton. And so it was a big story, but I think one, the offensive line was atrocious Two, I think, especially coming out of Duke and not playing in the sec He any rookie quarterback, but he certainly had to adjust to the speed of the game. Just the speed of the game was faster than what he expected. And he didn't take care of the ball well enough and turned it over. But still, if you remember, there was a dynamic quarterback there before our eyes as a rookie. And then, as John Mara said, they did everything the Giants as a franchise they possibly could to try and break him. And that included poor coaching, poor offensive coordinator, um, poor offensive line, lack of weapons type stuff, all of that. And then a changing offensive scheme, offensive coordinators, um, quarterback coaches, head coaches. This will be the first time this upcoming season where he will have the same offensive uh, you know, two years in a row, he's now going to have, you know, we hope um, that Timmel, we think so highly of, he will have full season of, you know, two years in a row, same head coach, full season, two years in a row, same, you know, same offensive coordinator, same quarterback coach, same system, all of that. And so I just thought that, there was this potential lying within Daniel Jones. And I think that Dable and Mike Kafka, I think they were actually quite conservative with Daniel Jones, didn't really open up the playbook, limited things more for him this year to had him running more and to try and make him successful. I'm curious what happens, especially if they can get a decent center in there and the line you know offensive line continues to improve i'm curious what they do when they gain more confidence with him in year 2 in the system and they open up the offense a little bit and they raise expectations for him i think there's another level for him to get to and i'm not saying he has the talent and natural ability of a uh, Josh Allen. And, you know, of course, there's, you know, Mahomes is in a league all of his own. You know, I get all of that. I'm not saying that upper echelon, but I think there's still another step for Daniel Jones that showed glimmers of that as a rookie. And now with this coaching staff limiting the turnovers, getting him to play smart football, using his legs more strategically, I think there is upside In adding more of the deep ball to as a regular feature of the offense, I think there's elements of this that with the Giants had almost no, to my memory, yards after the catch in that offense last year. Like just imagine how much more this dynamic this offense could be. I like the addition of of Paris Campbell and his speed. uh, Signing him as a free agent wide receiver, I I think that Daniel Jones got better it didn't surprise me with decent coaching that he could get better. And I think I will give them credit. I think if you really study the tape, especially watch his feet and mechanics in the pocket and and the way he moves some of that, you could see him getting better over the course of the season, but I think there's even another level for him to get to that. I, I hope we see, um, as he moves forward with, with, uh, Brian Dable.
0: Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, a second year with the playbook which like you mentioned he really hasn't had that yet a second year with the playbook and his intelligence as a player and his ability yeah i think and the weapons and the strategy i think it's going to be a, a huge year um Lori, I, I can't thank you enough i think i asked you for 15 minutes and we got almost double this has been so much fun
3: um take care tim uh it was my pleasure <laughs> and uh and you know hopefully we'll catch up soon
0: Oh, absolutely. Hopefully we can get you back later in the year. Um, Everybody, uh, please follow Laurie on Twitter. It's L Rubinson. Of course, check out FAN shows on. Usually it's on at 10 p.m. um, Sometimes with games that that will vary, but uh, they're on every Sunday. And and really, Laurie, can't thank you enough for coming on.
3: No problem. Take care, Tim. Bye bye.